I was recently in Iran producing a public television special and was amazed at what I learned. I'm Rick Steves, and today we're starting a two-part series on Iran on Travel with Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, we'll talk with two Iranian-American experts about Iran. What makes it tick, how it's different from other Middle Eastern nations, and why Iran is so enigmatic to Westerners. Then, next week, we'll explore what it's like to be a tourist in Iran, from meeting the people to seeing the incredible sights of ancient Persia. All of this is an effort to help understand what has to be one of the most intriguing countries in the world. In just a moment, Human Maj joins us to clear up some of the mystery about his home country. He's an author and a journalist who works closely with Iran's competing political leaders. And later in the hour, Dr. Fatali Mogadam explores how globalization may actually be fueling terrorism in our complicated world. Stay with us as we examine the often perplexing personality of Iran. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. In the last year, I spent two weeks in Iran filming a one-hour public television documentary that will be airing all over the United States in the next week or so. I never learned so much in two weeks about a country as when I was in Iran. And I've never come away from a new country so perplexed and struggling with a lot of complicated questions about what makes 70 million Iranians tick. To get some clarification, we're dedicating this next hour to Iran. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined by Human Majd. Human was born in 1957 in Tehran. His dad was an ambassador from Iran to Japan. But like most ambassadors and state workers, he had to emigrate in 1979 because that's when the Shah was thrown out and Ayatollah Khomeini came in. Since then, Human has maintained a good connection with Iran. In fact, Human was the grandson of a grand Ayatollah, and he's written a book, just came out, called... The Ayatollah Begs to Differ. Human, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Rick. Your grandfather was a grand Ayatollah? Yes, he was. He passed away before the revolution, so he never saw um, the Islamic revolution, never even saw the the beginnings of it. We know about this word Ayatollah from Ayatollah Khomeini, but it's it's a title, right? What's Ayatollah and what's Grand Ayatollah? Well, Ayatollah is, um, it actually literally means a sign of God, but it's a title given by consensus to clerics in Shia Islam. Uh, Islam isn't really supposed to have a clergy. Certainly Sunni Islam doesn't, but the Shias have a clergy. An Ayatollah is the highest rank you can reach in that sort of like the equivalent of a cardinal. A grand Ayatollah is someone who is even higher than an Ayatollah, if that can be possible. Um, someone who's reached the pinnacle of, um, I, I don't think there's an equivalent in the Catholic Church. I mean, you could argue that a grand Ayatollah is close to being a Pope-like figure okay. in, in the religion. Now, am I right that your dad was in the Foreign Service for the Shah, and if you yes. were in the Foreign Service for the Shah, you were out of work in 1979? You were out of work in 1979, precisely. <laughs> okay. So from that point on, your family, which was quite a well-established family within Iran, you guys were emigrants. Uh, Persona non grata, basically. That's right. To to a large degree. I mean, in the early days of the revolution, as with every revolution throughout the world, there has been, you know, there are some excesses and some, you know, cleaning of the slate and, and, and cutting off ties with the past. And as the fervor dies down, as it has in Iran, as it did in Iran, um, some 10 years after the revolution or mm. within 10 years of the revolution, people like myself started to become welcome again in Iran. Well, apparently, because Ahmadinejad is no centrist, and he hired you to translate for him at the UN General Assembly, right? Yes, he did. I mean, well, hire is a probably too strong a word. Uh, asked me to. Um, I didn't take payment, and I, I didn't really want to be an, an employee mm-hmm. of the government of Iran. Um, it was asked of me, and my condition was that I would be able to write about it, uh, ah. which I did and that I wouldn't take payment, and uh, it would be basically a favor, and the the return favor was that I was able to write about it, uh, as I have done both in my book and, you know, in a couple of other articles in various magazines. Well, he must have liked the way you translated, because he asked you back in uh, 2007 and 2008. Yes, yes, I think they did. I think the Iranians generally do like the way... (laughs) (laughs) I think they like the idea of having someone who can speak like an American voicing his words at the UN, yes. And then just reading your book, your book is so readable and you are so well-connected. It seems like it's a small world. Iran's got 70 million people, but if you're in the governing elite, it seems like a rather small world. 
It is like in most countries, I would say that. I mean, certainly Iran is nowhere near the size of the United States, uh, neither geographically nor population-wise, nor is the government as big or as powerful as it is in the United States. So in most countries, um, if you're in the elite, for want of a better word, or if you're, you're mm -hmm. in the leadership, then yes, it's a very small world. Right now, Iran is, as you know, has uh, competing centers of power in government, and there are people who really dislike each other, <laughs> as is evidence. I learned that in spades, because we were on the streets with our minder, and we had all the permissions uh -huh. correct, and we're constantly yes. getting busted, and our minder didn't know who was going to bust him, and sometimes his papers worked, and sometimes they didn't. So there was apparently overlapping security concerns. Oh, yeah, and there, sometimes one doesn't know who. I mean, for example, with the arrests of the Iranian-Americans in the last couple of years, as you've read about <laughs> and, and heard about, it's often not clear who has arrested them. And probably somebody uh, because, in government is going, what the heck's going on? Release those guys. Exactly. This is not what exactly. we're trying to do. Exactly, wow. exactly. But, that, but to be fair, that happens in other countries too. Sure. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. a local law enforcement officer can arrest someone in the United States, for example. Yeah. Certainly the federal government doesn't know about it, even if that person is an asset of the United States. Yeah. Or whatever. I mean, the, things like that can happen when there's different agencies doing different things with different agendas, really. But you as a foreigner, as a, certainly as a as clearly marked as an American reporter, right. um, you will have been a little bit more under scrutiny by the various agencies. Right. Well, my sense was that they wanted media in the West, and they had been burned by media in the West by other crews, and they felt like people came in, they got beautiful footage, and they edited in a way that makes it look menacing, and they did mm -hmm. some background on me. I worked for public television, and they figured we weren't, you know, like some of the more conservative, uh, sensational Fox kind News. of... Uh, Fox <laughs> News, that's right. And uh, so they gave us our visas, but I really yes. felt like they're actually, in their gawky way, trying to encourage tourism. They've got a You're lot of absolutely policies. right. What, what's yes, with they that? They're, they're not worried about Western influence coming in with tourists. They actually want us to better understand them. I think they do. I, it's definitely a, a major push. And actually, to be fair to the Ahmadinejad government, he has made it a priority to increase tourism from the West, not just from the West, but even including the United States. Yeah. And, you know, they have tourism conferences. They had one in December in Tehran where they invited American tourism officials to come. They don't make it easy for American tourists to get visas, unfortunately. Well, it's but, a lot like traveling in the Soviet Union. I mean, you could do it, but you had to get your hotels figured out and you had to have a guide. I guess that's what it right. is today. That's kind of what they want what They want for the American tourists, yes. I think of tourism in Iran kind of like a Cuban cigar. You know, it's a big deal for Americans, <laughs> but for everybody else, it's just a good cigar. You see, you can go there. The Lonely Planet guidebook to Iran sells quite well, actually. Yes, yes. And in fact, if uh, you've probably noticed this uh, on the flights, if you arrive at Tehran Airport, there's flights from every country in the world except the United States, from Japan, from Paris, from London, and there are European tourists. The name of your book, Ayatollah Begs to Differ, The Paradox yes. of Modern Iran. Ayatollah mm -hmm. Begs to Differ, The Paradox of Modern Iran. What, what do you mean by that, Human? I'm, I'm trying to get across, first of all, that uh, not every ayatollah, not every cleric, not everybody in Iran has the same opinion or views things the same way politically. There is a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of discussion. There's a pretty open political society in, in, in Iran. Of course, there are red lines that can't be crossed. But there are plenty of ayatollahs even who have a lot of influence and power in Iran who would disagree with, say, for example, the president or another ayatollah even, even religious matters. So there is a pretty lively society in Tehran, and you've, I'm sure, recognized that to some degree when you were there. It would have been harder for you as, a, as an American to be involved in a lot of political discussions, and people are going to be a little wary when they see an American. They might want to say the things that they think you want to hear in some cases. But that's what I was trying to get across in the title of the Ayatollah Begs to Differ. First of mm. all, people think of the Ayatollah, they think of Khomeini, as you pointed out. But there are, in fact, you know, 20 Ayatollahs in Iran. Uh, there may be 21 or 22 at any given time, depending on who's just died yeah. and who's just been right. uh, elevated. Um, but uh, that's the first thing. And the paradox of modern Iran, I think what's interesting about the word paradox is what is a paradox to us is not a paradox to them. I do try to get that across in the book to some degree, but there are paradoxes, that things that seem like paradoxes hmm. to us. For example, this is a very religious country, and yet the religion outside of the very obvious mandatory hijab for women is not really part of public life. You don't really see it as much as you do, say, in Saudi Arabia or even in 
Dubai, which is a you know very Western, close ally of the West. You know, this is a very important point to make. And by the way, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Human Majd. And, and Human is Iranian-born. His dad was an ambassador until the revolution in 1979. He's written a book called The Ayatollah Begs to Differ, helping explain this complicated society to Americans. And Human, you mentioned the irony. Iran is a theocracy. I mean, I believe they've traded away much of their democracy for a theocracy, for a revolution of values. They're concerned. They're motivated by love and fear. They want their kids to be raised in an atmosphere that fits their 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 morality. I was told they just don't want their girls to be raised like Britney Spears. Does that resonate with you? Yes, I think that's true to a large degree. I think it's probably not entirely fair to say they traded away democracy for theocracy because they never believed they had a democracy in the first place. Hmm. Uh, under the Shah, there were elements of democracy, but they were on the surface. There were a lot of social freedoms, but very few political freedoms. You know, there was a secret police. People got thrown in jail. I had friends who got thrown in jail just for attending a a party, things like that. So there really wasn't any political freedom. So there wasn't democracy in that sense. And the Shah was the absolute ruler. You could argue that today that the supreme leader of Iran is an absolute ruler. So things haven't changed that much. But Mm -hmm. they do allow a lot more um, political freedom. But they have taken away many of the social freedoms. I think the initial reaction, the reason why people returned to Islam in 1979 was because they really did sense that the Shah was trying to impose a Western culture on an Eastern country, or at least a country that didn't really identify itself as either Eastern or Western, but as its own thing. That's just it. Back then, they were bragging that the miniskirts were shorter in Tehran than they were in Paris. Now, that may sound great to somebody in the elite North Tehran, but if you are a less educated, fundamentalist, conservative, small-town Muslim trying to raise kids with a lot of Western influence, that's sort of like ugly, and you would support. That's horrifying, yes. yes. So, so these parents who have lived under the Shah, I mean, try to put yourself in their mindset. They're conservative Muslim parents that don't want their kids to be raised like boy toys or sex toys or drug addicts or mindless materialists. This is what they would perceive from this encroaching Western influence. They reacted by having a what they call a revolution of values. The irony is those yes. are the f- same family values that motivate a lot of people in our country to be so threatened by their values. Exactly. I mean, uh, family values or social values are important in every culture, and people do tend to vote conservative when they're afraid, as we know, both whether it's here or in Iran. That's part of the picture. I think the other part is that people in Iran sense that the Shah wasn't just importing Western culture wholesale and imposing it on the people, but he was also imposing something that was alien to them, not just the culture, but just the whole being an an existence that didn't really Mm -hmm. resonate with the Iranians. And on top of that, he was viewed as a puppet of the United States. So for people who are very prideful and believed in the greatness of the Persian Empire and how great of a culture it is, it felt, you know, being subordinate to the United States or being subordinate to the Western powers felt like a grand insult, uh, which is why so many very secular, Western-educated, highly educated elite students, for example, supported the revolution because they really had had enough of this idea that we as Persians couldn't guide our own destiny. Fascinating. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Human Maj, the author of The Ayatollah Begs to Differ. We're going to talk about Iranian pride. We're going to talk about the irony of a theocracy that is actually weakening the spiritual fabric of a country. And we're going to talk about a little Persian poetry Coming up. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
من توراج هستم و با ریکستیف سفر میکنم. I'm توراج. This is Farsi for I'm traveling with ریکستیف. من توراج هستم و با ریکستیف سفر میکنم. I'm Rick Steves. I've been thinking a lot about Iran lately because I just spent two weeks there. We produced a one-hour public television documentary. It's going to be airing all over the United States in the next week or so. And today we're dedicating this hour to better understanding Iran. I'm joined by Human Majd. Human has written a book called The Ayatollah Begs to Differ. And we were talking about uh, a country that gave up some of its rights in order to have a theocracy and what motivates that and so on. And Human, I've been in a lot of secular Islamic countries, and I've mm-hmm. been in a theocracy called Iran. And the irony to me, when I was in Iran, I felt that there was no audible call to prayer. The skyline wasn't just um, cut up by minarets. It felt surprisingly secular. And then I was in neighboring Turkey, which is by law secular, The military of Turkey is constitutionally obligated to overthrow its government. It ever becomes a theocracy, the complete opposite of Iran. And I felt that there was a more vibrant grassroots Muslim faith in the secular country as opposed to the theocracy. And I thought there may be some lessons there for Americans who, out of concern for their neighbor's salvation, would consider violating our precious separation of church and state. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, you mentioned other countries that are Islamic countries. Uh, there's only Iran and Iraq now that are Shia countries, or at least ruled by Shias. And Shia Islam is very different from Sunni Islam in that it's a much more private in its application of the religion. For example, you don't have to pray exactly on the hour. You should if you can, but you don't have to. You're not obliged to pray on the hour of, of the call to prayer. So, I mean, in New York City where I live, you see cab drivers pull over to the side of the road and pray mm-hmm. when, when it's time to pray. And you don't see that in Tehran. People go about their business. They behave in a very secular manner. Privately in their home, they'll go and they'll pray at the, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. They'll make up the prayer, the noon prayer, for example, and stuff like that. But anytime, to go to your question, anytime there's an enforcement of religion, I think you'll get a reaction against it. And anytime there's a ban on religion, you'll get a reaction against it as well. So in Turkey, what you see is a reaction against this idea that I'm not allowed to be a Muslim the way I want to be. And in Iran, you get a little bit of a reaction against this idea that I'm being forced to be Islamic when I am Islamic, but I don't want to be forced to be doing anything. So I think that's just human. But that difference that you mentioned between Shia and Sunni can explain what I was observing and sort of um, go against what I was concluding. So it's not necessarily less spiritual. It's just because they are Shia, and you'll only really see that in Iran and Iraq, uh, it's less obvious on the streets. It's less obvious on the streets, exactly. It's not mandated the same way that it is in Saudi Arabia, for example. A big question for a lot of Americans is this difference between Shia and Sunni. And I understand 10% of the 1.3 billion Muslims are Shia. Uh, The rest of them are Sunni. And the only real Shia government is in Iran. Ironically, because of the Iraq war, uh, what's coming out of that is no longer a Sunni Iraq run by a minority in, in Saddam Hussein, but a Shia majority that would be naturally allied more closely with Iran. Now, my understanding is Shia and Sunni have the same holy book, and a good Shiite and a good Sunni, in their minds, will all be going to heaven just the same. Is that right? Correct. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the difference between Shia and Sunni, I mean, the easiest way for an American to understand it or for a Westerner or non-Muslim to understand it is is somewhat like the difference between the Catholicism and Protestantism and Christianity. It's a different sect. It's split off. Shia Islam split off based on the fact that the Shias believed that the rightful heirs to the Prophet, there should be a succession to the Prophet, and that succession should be all the male heirs of the Prophet, the uh, descendants of the Prophet, should be the Imams, the people who lead the Caliphate. The Sunnis disagreed because they said Muhammad didn't believe in hereditary Mm. power, and so they would vote for who should be in charge of the world's Muslims. So that's where the split came. It's a very simplistic way It does relate to Catholicism and Protestantism more than I realized because the basis of Catholicism is this direct line through the popes to Jesus and Peter, the first pope, uh, giving them a special authority. So also, it's really of real concern to me because I am a TV producer. I could go over there and the footage I shot, it was so clear I could edit that in a menacing way or in a way that wasn't threatening. And most Americans are creatures of the media. Our perception is shaped by what the media shows us. And we look at these guys whipping themselves with those metal 
chains on their backs yes. and shedding blood. Yeah. Now, that is a Shia ritual, isn't it? Absolutely. And in fact, the Sunnis think it's, it's against Islam. Yeah. So, but 10% of Muslims do that. A lot of Americans think that's just what they do on Christmas or something, you know? Yeah, well, I wouldn't even say 10% because I would say that not all Shias do that, obviously. The, the, the really fanatic or the, or the very religious do it. But in Iran, you wrote that you're not supposed to break your skin. You're not supposed to shed blood, right? Yes, the Ayatollahs really are very much against that. Yes, but we see on the media people bleeding, and it just looks like your yes, own massacre. Yes. But that's just some sort of disingenuous media showing that to imply that's how Shias worship. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, some of the footage that you refer to, some of that footage comes from places like Pakistan where the government doesn't have an opinion on what you can or can't do to your own body. And some of those people do actually go rather far in terms of like cutting themselves with razor blades and stuff like yeah. that. But you sound like a pretty modern guy and you hit yourself during this festival, don't oh, you? Oh, yes, 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 yes. And, and it is it is exhilarating, I'll have to admit. And I mean, I, <laughs> it was the first time I'd ever done it in my life. Um, and there is something about, you know, it's like walking to a cathedral and, and, and you, something, there's ah. something there that makes you feel... You know, I, I'm not I, I'm not claiming to be a spiritual person, but there's something oh. there that makes you feel yeah. um, f- a certain energy. I was just in Fatima in Portugal, and a guy was walking 500 yards on his knees to the shrine. I was, mm-hmm. I was in mm-hmm. Portugal, and people have bloody feet after walking barefoot to the top of that mountain on St. Patrick Day or whatever, you know? So this yeah, is a yeah. way people... Um, get into their spirituality, I guess. Yes, and you get a sense of community because, you know, the self-flagellation in Iran is never done, you know, alone. It's done in a group. Oh, and it yeah, becomes like almost like, as you, I don't know if you've seen it, but it becomes like almost like a dance. Uh, you know, people become almost hypnotized by it. And oh. I can see the attraction to the idea of, you know, joining a bunch of your friends and going and beating yourself. I know it sounds crazy, <laughs> but you have Tuesday to experience night, bring it. Your, <laughs> yeah. bring hey, I'm speaking, bring with, whip, yeah. I'm speaking with Human Majd, and Human born in Iran in uh, 1957 uh, in a family that was well-connected under the Shah's time. Of course, they all got an invitation to get the heck out of there in 1979 when the country became a theocracy. And today, Human has an ongoing connection with Iran, and he's written a book called The Ayatollah Begs to Differ, explaining some of the intricacies of modern Iran. Human, when you are doing your work, when you're talking to me right now, for instance, you you work with Ahmadinejad. You've got Khatami. Is a, a, you've worked with him closely, uh, who's a, yes, sort of a yes. moderate. He's a relative, yeah. Uh, he's a relative, and he's a big power. He could mm. actually get back into the presidency, which would be good news for relations with the West, I understand. Absolutely. Are you concerned when you talk to me or somebody uh, in the press in the West? Do you have to be careful with what you say? What could we not talk about? I, I've never felt that I have to be careful, and nobody in Iran has ever asked me to be careful or has said that, you know, I, I've heard things like they're displeased with something I may have said in one interview here or one interview there. I'm sure there are elements of my book that they're displeased with. But as a writer, I, I mean, I can't censor myself, and I, right. I don't think anything is off limits. And I can pretty much defend what I say in Iran mm-hmm. because I am very affectionate towards the country and towards the people. And um, if there's criticism, I think it's deserved criticism. It's not, a, I don't have an agenda. I'm a writer. My agenda is not to overthrow the Islamic Republic of Iran. And I think they yeah. understand that. My feeling was they wanted the truth to be told. And uh, they didn't apologize for their lack of democracy. They are their way. And I was told a couple of times, we wouldn't want that aired within our country. But what you air outside of our country is sort of a different story. Well, absolutely, yes. And then there is censorship in Iran, and so not everything does get aired there. Right. But they're also, the government's very aware that people have satellite dishes and they sure, have they're have very the Western internet savvy. And, yes, very Western savvy, exactly. They know who Britney Spears is, for example. They sure do, and they don't want their girls to be graced like that. That's yeah. an interesting motivation. Hey, Human, yeah. uh, in your book, you have a beautiful poem, and I'd like just to get your comment on it. It's uh, just to paraphrase the poem Out beyond fields of wrongdoing and fields of right doing, there is another field. I'll meet you there. What did you yes, mean by that? Yes. Well, I, th- I mean, it's a it's an 11th century poem, and I think that it just basically means set aside all your preconceived notions of what is right and what is wrong. The grievances that you hold, the uh, disappointments you have, there's, there's somewhere else we can sit and talk where we can actually have common ground, regardless of the wrongdoing, the right doing. And I think that that's really important in terms of, you know, how we as Americans view Iran, and also vice versa, how Iranians view the United States. And it, it's really like kind of a mantra for me. And in my opinion, it should be a mantra for the next U.S. administration, and it should be a mantra for the Iranian government. It's just like, mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's accept that there are these fields of wrongdoing and rightdoing. The wrongdoing of Iran and Mossadegh, I mean, U.S. and Mossadegh in 1953, the CIA coup, the wrongdoing of this, that, and that. Mm-hmm. And our 
feelings of wrongdoing on Iran's part, the hostage crisis, supporting, you know, certain kinds of organizations we consider terrorists. Those are the wrongdoing, and there's some right-doing, too. And let's say, mm-hmm. let's ignore all of that and start afresh, and let's go to that field where we can both sit down and talk and say, okay, well, what's up? How can, we, how can we make this better? People who spend a lot of time and energy sorting through persistent problems, I think, are coming to that, that there's a way to negotiate and and find a way to understand each other and peacefully coexist. I came out of Iran after two weeks there realizing it would be dangerously naive to believe that we could shock and awe 70 million Iranians into abandoning what they think is important. They have their culture, and it's a rich culture going all the way back to Persepolis, 500 years before Christ. And one of the most powerful experiences I had was going to Persepolis, which I consider the greatest ancient site between the Mediterranean and India, and seeing Persians going there as sort of a pilgrimage to connect with their rich culture that goes back 1,200 years before uh, the advent of Islam. I mean, uh, that was Zoroastrian, and this was Xerxes and Darius and so on. Mm -hmm. Do you get that sense that people have these deep roots and Persepolis has an important place in their heart that way? I think one thing to remember about Iran and one thing that we we easily forget in the West and particularly in the United States is that Iran has been a nation for, as you pointed out, close to 2,500 years, a little bit oh, more than 2,500 years, in with virtually the same borders. I mean, the Persian Empire grew, but the original Persia, with Persepolis as its capital, has been a nation state and, and an ethnically diverse nation state for 2,500 years, whereas every single other country in the Middle East, every single other country in the Middle East has only been a country for less than 100 years. Yeah, including Iraq. Including Iraq, including Israel, including Saudi Arabia, including mm-hmm. Jordan, uh, including Syria. Wow. Um, you can go, th- including Turkey. One after another, you can just go down the list and say less than 100 years. Iran, 2,500 years. So there is this sense, and you know, every Iranian child who goes to school, and they all do go to school, they learn about their history the same way we learn about our history here, mm-hmm. about George Washington and the Civil War, everything else. They learn about their history going back 2,500 years. So there's a very strong sense of nationhood, the fact that these various ethnic groups came together and a Persian empire was created and they all lived together. I mean, even today, if you think about it, the supreme leader of Iran is ethnically Turkish, and yet he's the supreme leader of Iran. So there's been this tradition of different ethnicities living side by side in this land called, used to be called Persia by Westerners or Iran by Iranians for thousands of years. And that sense of history is very, very important to Iranians. Wow. So the supreme leader is ethnically Turkish. I think people uh, need to understand that we always hear about Ahmadinejad, the president, but clearly the person with the most political power is the successor to Ayatollah Khomeini, who's called the supreme leader. So he's Ahmadinejad's boss. Is that right? Correct. Well, I mean, they don't put it in those terms in terms of boss, but yes, practically speaking, he is the ultimate authority in Iran and he is therefore everybody's boss. Yes. So, so this successor to Ayatollah Khomeini, it's confusing for Americans because he's Ayatollah Khamenei. Khamenei. Khamenei, yes. almost spelled the same. Yeah. And is there almost a, the same? Yeah. Is there a feeling? I, I feel like if you were a Catholic, you'd be sort of wistful about John Paul II when you look at Pope. Benedict today. I mean, he's, he's, I'm sure he's a great guy, but he's just not a superstar. Uh, is there yeah. a feeling like that in Iran with uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's successor? I don't think so. I think that the revolution has matured. I mean, I think people revere Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, a lot of people do. They revere him as the founder of the revolution, as someone who was absolutely had incredible charisma and charm. Um, Khamenei doesn't have the same charisma and charm, but he's behaved in a way that is, for a lot of people, is above reproach. I mean, he's allowed a lot of things to happen. In some cases, he's cracked down on on things that, you know, civil society. But generally speaking, there isn't this, like, wistful uh, Mm. saying, oh, gosh, we wish Khamenei was alive. No, no, there isn't that that aspect of it. I was at Khomeini's tomb, by the way, and very impressed by the the warmth and love people have for him. He's not the menacing, scary ideologue that I grew up thinking he was to to his constituency, basically, which is the more conservative, probably less educated, more fundamentalist crowd in Iran. Is that right? That is absolutely right. I mean, we have to remember there's 70, as you pointed out, 70 million Iranians, and the ones that we come into contact with in the West tend to be the more educated, intellectual, upper-class ones, and they they number, they're, they're a small minority. Now, speaking about that, when I think of Ahmadinejad and I hear his bombast, I think it's important for Americans to recognize that just like our politicians will say something a little bit out there in order to shore up their political base, much of what Ahmadinejad says is shoring up his frightened, small-town, less-educated, fundamentalist, conservative base. Does that make sense to you? 
That absolutely does make sense. And yes, that's that's absolutely true. And it's not just the base that he has in Iran. He also has a pretty good base of support outside of Iran in the Muslim third world. He's in power until they have a new election in June 2009. And, and Correct. M- my hunch is if, if America is easy to demonize, that's good for his political aspirations. And if we become less scary, that makes it a tougher re-election for him. Well, it, it, yeah, that's a complicated one because I think because he realizes that a lot of people in Iran, even fundamentalists, are kind of tired of this break in relations between the U.S. and Iran. Right. They realize that, that if Iran was able to have good relations with the United States, a lot of things would be fixed in terms of the economy, in terms of sanctions, et cetera, et cetera, unemployment. And so I think there's this, like, it, it's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. I think Ahmadinejad would actually like to be able to claim to have been the person to have, you know, wow brokered a new relationship with the United States, but on his terms. Yeah, there's a window of hope there, but yeah. we've got to recognize there's a lot of face-saving and a lot of complexity there. You know, Absolutely. we always hear about this death to Israel, death to America stuff. I was in a traffic jam in Iran, and suddenly mm. my driver just blurted out, death to traffic. I almost had a, <laughs> yeah. I almost had whiplash looking at what? I thought it was death <laughs> to America. And he said, well, no, here in Iran, if we're frustrated by something we can't control, we just say death to that. Yeah, Does that exactly. make sense? That's, that was so surprising to me. Yeah, it actually has never meant a literal death to America um, or a literal death to Israel. I mean, they may mean it more with Israel, but they, they say death to things all the time. Yes. I think it's like damn those teenagers. You don't, need, you don't exactly. want to kill them. You, just, or you don't want them to die and burn in hell for eternity. You just wish they'd turn the music down. Yeah, a better translation would actually be goddamn um, Israel or goddamn the United States would be better than death too. Even though the word death is used in the Farsi, yeah. it's much more equivalent to goddamn, which is bad enough. I'm not saying that's, that's a great thing either, but it, it's kind of like a frustration, a thing that you say, like, you know, when Reverend Wright said, you know, goddamn the United States and Barack Obama got into so much trouble over that, uh, even though it wasn't his, it was his preacher. Um, but I think that that was, you know, the frustration that was coming out of Reverend Wright's mouth. I mean, he didn't literally mean that he wanted God to damn the United States to some kind of damnation. Human, let me uh, take that out back to our Persian poem then. Out beyond fields of wrongdoing and fields of right doing, there's another field. I'll meet you there. Maybe that's a, a good theme and we can learn more about each other's society and realize that the flip side of fear in so many cases is understanding and we, we enjoy that through travel. I've been speaking with Human Majd and Human's book, it's a such a readable book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's called The Ayatollah Begs to Differ. Human, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights into a rich and powerful culture, your homeland, Iran. Thank you so much, Rick. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. از این آوار و اون تکرار و این تکرار و این آوار دلم خونه دلم خونه دلم تنگه You'll find a slideshow from my recent trip to Iran online at ricksteves.com. There's also a feedback form to post your comments about today's show. Up next, Dr. Fatali Mogadam from Georgetown University joins us to explain how globalization might be inspiring terrorism and how globalization fuels the conflict between traditional and contemporary societies. Thanks for joining us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. In the developing world, they say globalization is a big train. Get on it or get run over. And each year, about a dozen languages or so actually die out. The ethnic and cultural diversity of our planet is threatened by the international economy where bigger is better. At the same time, a billion Muslims and a billion Christians are struggling to get along peacefully. Our next guest is here to explore some of these issues. Professor Fatali Mogadam is a professor of psychology at Georgetown University. He's the director of the Conflict Resolution Department there. He's a senior fellow at Stanford Center for Education and Research on Terrorism. Professor Mogadam was born in Iran, educated in Britain, and his expertise is the psychology of justice, intergroup conflict, and terrorism. Professor Mogadam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, your latest book, How Globalization Spurs Terrorism, uh, the subtitle is The Lopsided Benefits of One World and Why That Fuels Violence. Later on, I'd like to talk about Islam and Christianity, but right now, let's keep the very big picture. What's the, what's the essence of this? Globalization connected to violence. 
Well, globalization uh, has impacted different communities in different ways. Uh, in the West, the threat seen from globalization is basically economic, job outsourcing and those kinds of things. Uh, whereas in non-Western countries, uh, the threat perceived in globalization is cultural. The importation of uh, cultural values, lifestyles that are non-indigenous for traditional particularly fundamentalist Muslim communities around the world, globalization means the importation of secular Western culture, which is a threat to them. So in our culture, we'd be um, threatened by the loss of jobs, but we wouldn't necessarily be empathetic with people who are actually losing their culture as our jobs move over there? Yes. Um, think of it in relation to China, for example. Over here in the United States, people worry about the importation of cheap Chinese goods and the exportation of jobs from the United States. They're not worried about the importation of uh, Chinese culture, whereas in many um, non-Western societies, the big problem they're seeing is the importation of uh, American culture, particularly how it affects the young. Now, you also write about sudden contact of cultures. In the past, contact was very gradual, but by the nature of transportation and communication these days, cultures that have never touched each other are suddenly in intimate contact. How does that relate to this? It relates because sudden contact leads to perceptions of threat. When suddenly millions of people arrive on your shores and uh, you, you're not used to having these people there. For example, there are approximately 20 million Muslims in Europe at the moment. Um, that large-scale sudden movement of populations is unprecedented. And uh, what allows it to happen is, of course, modern technology and modern transportation systems it can lead to perceptions of threat. So how do people respond to those threats then? Well, uh, one way they respond is uh, universal, that is ethnocentrism. They become very inward-looking, they become more biased against outgroups, the kinds of trends we're seeing among some groups of Europeans. So with a lot of Algerians in France, you might have French people more... Um, angry about some Algerian girl wearing a scarf at school, according to her religious dictates. Absolutely, yes. I've discussed carriers. These are means by which cultures propagate their values. The Islamic veil is a carrier. The American flag is a carrier. I did one project where I interviewed people in the southern parts of the United States about the Confederate flag, the Confederate flag is just a piece of cloth, but some people are willing to die and kill for it. Just as the Islamic veil is just hmm. a piece of cloth, but some people are willing to die and kill for it. These are important means by which cultures propagate themselves. And of course, in Western Europe in particular, the veil has taken on a very high symbolic value. So these are things that people who are not intimately involved in this struggle, who aren't themselves threatened, would look at and say, well, just get over it. What's the big deal? Just don't wear your scarf or, or don't have the flag in your church or don't worry about a guy who's got a bumper sticker with a Confederate flag on it. But in actuality, these carriers are a defense mechanism for threatened groups. Absolutely, particularly when they are sacred carriers. Sacred carriers are typically related to religion. For example, the cross, where I teach at Georgetown a few years ago, we had heated debates as to whether the cross should be in every classroom. And of course, some people like myself didn't see a problem one way or another, but other people saw tremendous uh, restrictions to having a cross in every classroom. So hmm. it's not just, of course, in Muslim cultures, it's in Western Christian cultures where the same kinds of carriers play an important role. It's interesting because in my church, uh, whether we have the American flag up in the, in the front is a matter of great discussion. And some mm -hmm. people feel very passionately that it should be there. And other people say, right. well, what's it doing up there? Uh, you know? Right. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, human beings are extraordinary in that they can take something that objectively has absolutely no meaning or value and they can ascribe to it 
great meaning and value and uh, live and die for it. It's dangerous to underestimate that if you're not part of that group who cannot uh, empathize with those passionate feelings, I suppose. When we think of struggles down the road between Christendom and Islam, I would imagine that veil is going to crop up quite a bit, and it might seem silly to us, but it might be a matter of uh, life or death for people who want to stand for their threatened culture. Absolutely. And of course, the veil is becoming the sort of the line in the sand Mm. for a number of reasons. One of them is that both sides have recognized that the veil symbolizes the role of women. And if the role of women changes, along with that comes changes in socialization practices in the home and changes in the future generations. So I think that the veil is going to take on more significance rather than less significance in the future. Oh, this is interesting because I look at Islam as a culture that hasn't gone through all the Reformation changes that Christendom has gone through. And Mm -hmm. women, if they had more freedom, might accelerate the modernization of that culture. And forces conservative within Islam would rather have women under a veil, symbolic of not uh, yes. bringing on that change. Am I, am I getting it there? Absolutely, I agree with you. I think that's why in countries such as Iran and Saudi Arabia, the morality police are out in force to make sure that women wear the veil because it is seen as the line in, in the sand. And uh, both sides, um, modernists and the traditionalists, recognize this and the fight is on. And it's a bigger issue than simply, I don't want to see her neckline or some of her hair. The issue is, I don't want women to get a taste for change and to be able to exercise the impact that they would have on countries where women have more influence. It's not just symbolic. It is about the role of women and the structure of the family Mm -hmm. in the larger society. Now, when I talk to people about stress between Islam and Christendom, and about hope for the developing world, the the desperately poor world, the role of women keeps coming up. Um, Can you talk about, Mm -hmm. uh, from your perspective, why people keep thinking uh, hope is in giving women more freedom to to love their children and and be a more influential part of their societies? Well, there is no doubt that if we look at socialization practices, central to that are women. But on a broader level, giving women a more important role in the public sphere, uh, that transforms society very broadly. And it's not enough just to say, okay, let's give them education, because we now have the example of Iran where females actually outnumber males at the undergraduate level. But this has not led to a transformation in the larger public sphere because women still don't have political or economic power. So the forces in a society that want to keep women down can smartly give women a little more leeway here and there, sure, give them higher education, and still manage to uh, stop the snowballing change that that might bring. Absolutely. The, the, The key thing, I believe, is, first of all, reform of the legal system and reform of uh, the political system so women can play an equal role. And, of course, if reform of family law. These are all things that have been prevented in countries like Iran. And every society deals with these on their own tempo, and over time it seems like uh, progress does happen. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're talking about how globalization spurs terrorism, and I'm talking with Professor Fatali Mogadam, who's a professor of psychology at Georgetown University. Professor Mogadam, you also in your book talk about declining diversity among animals, plants, and human cultures and languages, and you illustrate that with the fact that every year a handful of languages die. I mean, when Columbus discovered America, there were 15,000 languages. Today, apparently, there are only 6,000 languages on this planet. Talk a little more about that, please. Well, globalization is uh, increasing interdependency, and we could argue that um, it's a good thing for us to all speak common languages. And one perspective would be that why not get everybody to speak English or some other common language so that there would be fewer miscommunications? However, another perspective is that diversity is beneficial 
and that we should try to support, to maintain cultural and linguistic diversity. And this is a debate that we should be having at the global level. This is a debate we should be having in the United Nations. Should countries around the world, should people around the world, should governments be attempting to maintain diversity or should we simply move along the path of assimilation and our goal being that we should all end up speaking the same languages and sharing very similar cultures because globalization seems to be associated with with assimilation. But aren't you saying in your book that as the economy globalizes, there's even a greater hunger for smaller and smaller groups to identify with a distinct culture? Yes, it's a backlash. As globalization takes place, ironically, what we are seeing is a greater yearning among people for localism, for a return to local identities and cultural ways. So it's not simply a matter of economic pressures. There are also identity needs, and local identities seem to be beneficial for us in some ways. Uh, let me put it another way. Think of it from an evolutionary perspective. From an evolutionary perspective, our evolution until very recently involved us living in very small groups. Until approximately 12, 15,000 years ago, we were living in groups of a couple of hundred people. The large cities that we see now are a very recent product. So localism and our relative happiness when we are in smaller groups, I think, is something to do with our long evolutionary path of having lived in small groups. That may show up again and, and us not realize that really there's a craving, even a subconscious craving for having a smaller group than what's dictated to us. Think of how we deal with being placed in organizations that are enormously large. Think of a person working for an organization, a multinational corporation with 100,000 employees around the world. How do we deal with that? Well, we deal with it by having our own department Mm -hmm. and associating with a uh, couple of hundred people around us. Yeah. It's like when I was at the university, 30,000 students, I needed a little group, so I was a member of the marching band. That was uh, 200 people. I had my, my little gang. I suppose it's the same culturally. Yes. Americans always know Nathan Hale and Patrick Henry and Ethan Allen, patriots mm -hmm. that wish they had more than one life to give for their country. If the fact is 10 languages every year are dying, would it be safe to say every year 10 ethnic groups lose the same kind of battle that these Nathan Hales were so courageously fighting? Yes, there is no doubt that human cultures and languages are in decline in terms of diversity. However, I, I should make a distinction here between actual intergroup differences and symbolic intergroup differences. It's true that our actual differences are in decline, but that doesn't mean that we don't fabricate differences. It may be that in, in almost every other way I'm similar to you, uh, but I will reconstruct, refabricate some kind of a difference so that, for example, I might wear my um, shirt differently or, hmm. or somehow create a difference so that I'd stand out and come out as different. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Professor Fatali Mogadam. Professor Mogadam has written a fascinating book called How Globalization Spurs Terrorism. Professor Mogadam, if we could just finish by bringing it back to this thought about Islam and Christianity. We hear people talking about the rising tide of Islamic fundamentalism or, or these threatening kind of phrases. If you could sit down with the forces of Islamic fundamentalism and actually negotiate with them on part of uh, Christendom or whatever they're threatened by, what, what do they want? And if we just was bottom line looking for peaceful coexistence, what would you propose? Well, there are different factions, obviously. There are some factions that I wouldn't even try to sit down and negotiate with because there are extremists who are taking up terrorist actions and they're not going to be very useful in terms of allies. But the vast majority of even the fundamentalist movements 
are worth negotiating with because the key feature of their mobilization is perceptions of threat. They see themselves about to be annihilated and they don't want to be annihilated. And that's the key. I was just in Iran for two weeks and that's the conclusion I found is what motivated all of this anxiety was actually fear of Western encroachment and love of their children. Absolutely. Let me, let me give you another example, completely different example. I was at McGill University for a number of years in the 80s in Canada, Montreal. McGill is a kind of English island in the middle of Montreal. Quebec nationalism continues to be strong in Canada. And uh, I interviewed Quebec nationalists about their perceptions and what they wanted. And it's fascinating that they have very much similar concerns to Islamic uh, fundamentalists. The concern is that they're going to be wiped out. They don't want to be wiped out by this English onslaught, this huge spread of the English language. They want to preserve their French culture and language. Mm. It's exactly the same kind of movement. Of course, the Quebec nationalists have not taken up terrorist tactics, although right. there have been violence there. You know, I think you, you sound like a professor of psychology. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what you are, and you've got a brilliant take yeah. on this. Professor Mogadam from Georgetown University, your book, How Globalization Spurs Terrorism, is a fascinating way to get a fresh and, and broad look at a problem that we'll be living with for some time to come. We're um, sort of entering a new age, a new year, looking forward, and I think that we can tackle these things thoughtfully. There is room for hope on this. Thank you so much for your insights into globalization and how that spurs terrorism. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Production and technical assistance comes from Sarah McCormick, Jonathan Lee, and Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan and at WAMU in Washington for their engineering help today. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next week as we explore tourism in Iran on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.